coming back. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you all again. Um, I told you if you were here last week that uh, I might share a little bit more about myself this week. And so I thought I would just take a second to do that. Um, uh, I brought a picture along with me of my family for you to, to see. It should be on the screen behind me. Behind me. And so I've got my wife, Stephanie. Um, I have my daughter, Caroline, who just started kindergarten. Dietrich, who just started preschool. And Hudson, down at the bottom, who just eats all the time. And uh, he's a year old, just turned one this June, and still to this day has yet to sleep through the night without waking up. He uh, wakes up probably five to seven times on average to eat, and it drives my wife insane. So we are praying that he'll learn to sleep. You could pray for us. And so I, I love my family. Um, and then I, we also have um, another baby on the way due in uh, March. So we're looking forward to that. I'm really not sure why you're all cheering because no, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're drowning. And so uh, we're excited. We are grateful. We're looking forward to that. Um, which maybe happened a little sooner than we were planning for. Well, um, I am a Ball State alum, uh, studied entrepreneurship here, um, been on staff for a while, uh, work with a great staff team at Ball State, and I think this is my ninth year working with crew. Spent some of that time overseas in East Asia on a, what we call a stint, which is a one-year internship, and uh, just loved it. So I, I love my job, love that I get to spend the best part of my day working with staff and working with collegiates like yourself. Um, talking about the thing that's most important to me, which is Jesus. And tonight, um, we're going to kick off a, a talk series. We're going to spend um, most of the fall semester in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And the series is called uh, Jesus is Better. And uh, we'll be looking at the person and the work of Jesus. And as we do that, um, I want to show us, as best as I can from the scriptures, why Jesus is so great and worthy of our faith and obedience. And I would say that my hope for this series can be summarized best from a little portion of a, a classic story. It's actually a children's story uh, called The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. And here's the, sto here's the story. I'll just jump right in. Lucy, caught up in her spiritual quest, saw the lion Aslan, who represents Christ in this story, Shining white and huge in the moonlight, in a burst of emotion, Lucy rushed to him, burying her face in the rich silkiness of his mane, whereupon the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath was all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, he answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Well, that's my hope for this talk series, that in the coming weeks as we open up the book of Hebrews and try to put on display the person and the work of Jesus, you and I, we will see Jesus to be bigger and bigger. Not because he's becoming bigger and bigger, but because we perceive him to be so. Our view of him is constantly growing and increasing. But to help us all kind of better understand where we're going to be going with this talk series, uh, you should probably know a couple things by way of background. First, it is important that you know 
that Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians, meaning these people were once part of Judaism, and they converted out of that to Jesus. And before this letter was written to them, it's kind of a, it was actually meant to be preached. It was a sermon. But before this was written, this group of Christians uh, had faced severe persecution at the hands of the Roman occupancy. And uh, because of their commitment to Christ, they were being persecuted. And because of this persecution, many in their community uh, were being tempted to walk away from Jesus and to turn back to their formal life in Judaism. And so the author of this book, we don't know who it is for sure, but the author of this book is writing this letter to woo them, to persuade them not to turn back. Because Jesus alone is the fulfillment and culmination of what the Old Testament was pointing forward to. And so um, tonight we're going to consider one of these topics. In each of our topics we're going to look at a presentation of Jesus and how he is greater, how he is superior to the Old Testament revelation. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. It's towards the, the end of the New Testament. And as you do, I have a question. Have you ever been in a situation where all of a sudden you realized that you drastically underestimated someone? Perhaps embarrassingly so. I remember one summer in college, this happened to me. Not, I wasn't the one who underestimated another, but someone underestimated me. And I was at a, a youth camp um, for the summer in Michigan. This was, I think, my freshman year. And uh, at the end of the summer, one of my friends from the camp uh, approached me kind of right before we were about to leave and go back home for the summer, uh, the last few days. And he said to me, you know, Corey, I got to talk to you because... I have to tell you something. I just really wanted to tell you that when we first got here, I completely underestimated you. When I first met you, honestly, dude, I thought you were kind of a weirdo. (laughs) And now that I've gotten to know you, I've realized that you're actually a pretty cool dude. And I just wanted to apologize for, for misjudging you. I'm not sure if I would have preferred he said that. I just would have been okay with ignorance. And him never saying anything, but, uh, but perhaps you've been in a situation where you've misjudged someone. You've underestimated their true value only to find out later how great they really were and what great of a person they really were. I know people who uh, met their spouses that way. They vastly underestimated their spouse, and before they knew it, they were married to them. Well, you know, and that may, be happen- that may happen to some of you here in this room. And uh, by the way, we encourage godly dating here in Crusoe, so, you know. Okay. All right. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm going to bounce back from that. Because what we do is we underestimate people. But I think, don't we often do this in our relationship with God as well? That we, we find ourselves often underestimating the true value and worth of God. And, uh... Because, and the point I want to make tonight is because we do that, because we underestimate uh, God's true greatness. And I want to talk specifically about Jesus. Because we underestimate Jesus' true greatness, we fail to give him the appropriate honor and reverence that he deserves. And as a result of that, 
we often elevate lesser voices to positions of influence that belong only to him. But you, you know, Jesus, he's much, much greater than we realize. He is the supreme revelation of God. And because of that, we should listen to him with reverence and awe. And so to see for yourself tonight why I say this, go ahead and read along with me these opening verses, the prologue, the introduction to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you for the space we have to meet here at Proust tonight. Lord, we are grateful for your revelation to us. And I just, I confess, Lord, my own sense of uh, feelings of inadequacy. Lord, here we are to herald the glory and the supremacy of your Son. And I do not have the words that, that do justice to his greatness. So my prayer tonight is that you would speak through me and anoint me with your power to declare the beauty of your Son. Open our eyes that we might see him for who he is and open our hearts that we might ponder his greatness tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well I want to give you tonight four reasons from this passage for why we should listen to Jesus, for why he is so worthy of our careful consideration. And the first reason is because Jesus is God's final revelation. Look at verse 1 and 2. Jesus, Jesus is the final revelation of God. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. You see, God is a God who speaks. We do not have a God that stays silent. Our God is a speaking God. And in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people through the prophets. Now, the prophets were these people who were authorized by God to deliver his word. You see, because uh, in, in the Old Testament era, during this time, God made a covenant with his people, the Israelites, and he promised to his people blessings for obedience to his revealed law. And he promised curses for disobedience. And then the prophets, they were there, not as fortune tellers or psychics or constantly predicting things in the future, but they were actually there to be sort of covenant law enforcers. They were there to enforce God's covenant dealings. And so they would come along the scene, and when Israel would be disobedient to God's laws, which quite frankly, that was pretty often, they would come along and say, listen, 
If you fail to repent, if you continue in your ways, God will judge you. And here's what's going to happen. If you do repent, here's what will happen. God will bless you. So they were there to enforce God's covenant relationship. And they, were, they and they only were authorized to declare his authoritative word. In the Old Testament, what, what the author is highlighting here is this, the, the difference between how in the Old Testament there were all these different ways and methods that God spoke to his people. So listen to this, this quote here. From as one writer put it, God spoke to Moses at Sinai and thunder and lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. He whispered to Elijah at Horeb in the still small voice. Ezekiel was informed by visions and Jacob by an angel. Amos gave direct oracles from God. Malachi used questions and answers. Ezekiel performed bizarre symbolic acts. Haggai preached sermons and Zechariah employed mysterious signs. So as you can see, for centuries... This was God's way of speaking to his people through these many prophets. But now he's saying, now things are different. Because now, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. So what's going on is the the variety and multiplicity of God's speech is being contrasted with the singularity and the finality of his speech in these last days through his son. God is not speaking to us today through another prophet. God is speaking to us through his son. You see, as great as God's word was in the past, and it was his word, he was saving his best word for last. Old Testament revelation was incomplete, as true as it was, and as far as it goes. And that's because everything in the Old Testament, when you crack open your Bible, that that first two-thirds, everything there is fundamentally pointing to Jesus and centered on him. And so now that the word has come, and it's come to us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, we should listen. And the key point I want to I get across, I think, from this first point is this. I think it's not just that, that Jesus is the last message in a long line of prophets, as Muslims believe. Muslims like Jesus. They believe he was a prophet. But rather, the point is different. It's that Jesus is a better than the prophets. Jesus, is the, Jesus alone is the decisive, climactic, supreme, and final revelation from God. There will be no more revelation. He, the buck stops with them. He alone is it. He is not just the last prophet. He's the prophet par excellence. Jesus is supreme. What this means today is that we don't need to look, go around looking for new words from God. You and I, we don't need new prophets to come and speak to us God's word. Or give us new revelation that he hasn't already revealed to us in Jesus. And that word that he has spoken to us through Jesus has been thankfully preserved for us. And what we now call the Bible. This book that you're holding. Whether it's a hard copy like mine or a digital copy on your phone. God's word has been preserved for us and we need no other revelation. It alone is sufficient But yet, we might still wonder, 
What is it about Jesus that uniquely qualifies him to be God's supreme revelation to us? You know, that's a pretty high calling. How come I didn't get the job? You know? I could do, I could do that, right? Well, the reason that Jesus got the job is because Jesus is God's appointed heir over creation. Consider this in verse 2. Jesus is the son appointed, whom God appointed the heir of all things. In the ancient world, the firstborn son would be the heir over the father's entire estate. And there would be a transfer at some point of ownership of all the father's possessions. And they would become the son's inheritance. Well, as God's only son, Jesus is the appointed heir to rule and reign over God's creation. And as the appointed heir, we see in this passage that Jesus is also the agent of creation. It says that God created the world through Jesus. God created the entire space and time continuum <laughs> through Jesus. Think about the vastness of the universe for a minute. In his uh, best-selling book, uh, Stephen Hawking, um, in A Brief History of Time, he's probably the most brilliant theoretical physicist uh, since Einstein. He says that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is, which is an average-sized spiral galaxy, and it contains, um, which not only contains our solar system, but it contains... Uh, billions of, about a hundred billion actually other stars, some of them even bigger than our sun. He says the Milky Way is about 600 trillion miles from one end to the other. I can't even fathom that. And he says that we now know that our galaxy is one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using the modern telescopes. And each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. In plain English, he's saying that there's at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. And those are just the ones that we can see. And each of those is on average 600 trillion million miles wide. 600 trillion miles wide. And you consider that the average distance between each of those galaxies is three million light years away. And that the most distant of those galaxies is about eight billion light years away and speeding further away at 200 million miles an hour. You think about the vastness of that, it just boggles the mind. It boggles our most brilliant physicists' minds. The universe is overwhelmingly vast. And Jesus is the one who created it all. His very word brought it into existence. Jesus is the creator. But not only is he the creator, Jesus is also the sustainer of the universe. Think about this. Not only does he create it, but he upholds it. And verse 3 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the very word of his power. You know, he, unlike the God of the deists, who that God just creates the world and kind of lets it run on its own, without really intervening in the world. He remains distant and uninvolved. Jesus, on the other hand, he keeps it moving. He's involved in his creation. And it's, the picture is not like the mythical god Atlas, if you've seen the picture, where he's kind of holding the world upon his shoulders. That's not really the picture. The picture is that Jesus is personally involved 
governing all the affairs of his creation. By his very word, Jesus' speech upholds the motions of the planets, the laws of nature, atmospheric conditions in every, uh, on every planet, the weather patterns, the motions of the, uh, the are all, all those things are all under his careful control. Even, even uh, microbiological organisms that you think of. Any biology majors here that study these things? You look under a, a microscope, any physics majors who are trying to look into quantum mechanics like quarks and heptons? These are things that befuddle the minds of our most brilliant physicists. And Jesus isn't bothered by, by it one bit. Because Jesus created all these things and he is upholding all of these things by the very word of his power. Because he created it, he alone can sustain it. And he does. Now, what I just said, for a lot of people in the world today... Uh, seems just a little bit too difficult to accept, right? I mean, how can it be that a Jewish carpenter who walked the dusty roads of Palestine some 2,000 years ago be personally responsible for creating a world that existed before he did? I mean, it just it seems too fantastic for, for many people to accept. And I think it's a valid question, right, to think about that. But the reason is because Jesus is not just the heir of creation, he is also God's perfect representation. And that is why he's qualified to be the creator. Let me explain this next point. Jesus is God's perfect representation. We see this in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Other translations you have might say he is the exact representation of God's nature, There's two pictures here that are going on that help clarify Jesus' identity. The first is that he is the radiance of God's glory. The idea here is of light radiating from a source. Um, Think about, for a moment, the sun and the moon. Okay, the sun radiates light and heat. All right? But the, the moon, on the other hand, does not. The moon reflects that light to the earth. In other words, moonlight is derivative and reflective, but not itself the source. And you and I, we're like the moon because we can reflect God's glory to each other, but Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus radiates the very glory of God because he himself is a twin source of that glory. He's not merely a reflection of it. But the second picture that we see is that he's also the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's true nature. The picture here is of a coin with a stamped image upon it. And uh, you might remember um, if you've been to an amusement park or like on a field trip somewhere, these little old uh, penny stampers that pump out these souvenirs for you. And there's like these machines that you can make a coin with. And so what you, what you might do is you turn that wheel um, and it prints the image onto your coin and it comes out with like a picture of Shamu or the, whatever, you know, whatever attraction you happen to be at. And they make money on that stuff. Well, the idea is that just as the, just as the die perfectly replicates the image on the coin, so also Jesus perfectly represents to the world the very 
nature of God. That means that Jesus, he shares all of the essential attributes and even abilities that God the Father possesses. And this, this is what qualifies him to be the creator and sustainer of the entire world. Because long before Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth in ancient Israel, he was the pre-existent, eternal son of God. And we should look no further than Jesus. We have to be careful today. I really think this is important for us to understand because there are all kinds of people and groups who are out there that sounds like that they're ascribing to Jesus the honor that he deserves. But in actuality, they, they reject this point that I'm teaching tonight. They reject Jesus' true nature and they actually dishonor and ultimately reject the Jesus that they say they like. And so for this reason, we have groups out there that are not just different denominations, but even cults. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be on guard for that. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses, they do not ascribe to Jesus his full divinity that I'm teaching you here. They believe that Jesus was certainly exalted above you and I, above mere human beings, but he was not equal with the Father. He was not fully divine. But this is false, as you see here in Hebrews 1. In a similar, but albeit a a different way, Mormons also hold to an unbiblical, defective view of Jesus. And not only that, there in our culture today, all kinds of these new age spiritualities, which on the surface seem quite positive about Jesus, but underneath the surface... They are erroneous and false in their understanding of who he is. And sadly, a lot of people today, young people, the masses imbibe these teachings um, in a lot of ways because there are popularizers of them. People like Oprah, for example, who, who claim to be Christians. They profess that they're Christians. But their view of Jesus is more reflective of these New Age spiritualities. They do not uphold the portrait that Hebrews is giving us here. Even Muslims, even Muslims can agree with a lot of what I'm saying with you tonight. But they don't hold his true divinity. They like Jesus. Actually, Muslims give respect to Jesus probably more than a lot of people in our society, but they don't hold the view that I'm I'm describing to you tonight. The Jesus I'm proclaiming is the divine Son of God who perfectly represents who God is and what he is like to the world. He is God's perfect representation, and we need to be on guard to make sure our view of Jesus corresponds to the one presented here in Hebrews. And so for all these reasons, we should listen to him. But there's one more, and I think this might be one of the most important ones for us in this room tonight. There's one more reason why we should listen to Jesus, and that is because Jesus is our ultimate purification. He's our ultimate purification. We see this again in verse 3. The author writes, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here, 
The, authorizing, the author is summarizing a point that we'll develop later in the series, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but he's bringing it up here because he's bringing up all these themes, actually, that come up later in the book. You see, in the Old Testament, God put in place the sacrificial system, a system whereby his people could temporarily deal with their sins. And what would happen in this system is that the Israelites would show up at the temple and they would bring an animal to have sacrificed by the priest. And this animal sacrifice, the blood that was shed, was supposed to atone for the guilt of their sin. However, there was one glaring problem with this whole system. You know what it is? The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. It was ineffective. And so what was needed was a greater, a more perfect sacrifice. And on his, in his death on the cross, Jesus offered up the definitive sacrifice that would forever, forever purify his people and forever take away their sin and guilt. And perhaps I would say this might just be the most important reason why we should listen to him. You see, because Jesus is not a distant deity off sitting on his throne in heaven, looking down on the planet that he created with indifference. He doesn't look at our misery and our pain and our sin and just wipe us off the planet, which he could do. But instead of doing that, Instead of just scrapping this project and recreating a new world and starting all over from scratch, no, Jesus enters our world, becomes our priest, and he atones for our guilt, takes away our sin, and purifies our hearts so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be restored to fellowship with God so that this world can be redeemed. We have a God of redemption, my friends. That's why we should listen to him. We have a God who gives us his own holiness and takes upon himself our own iniquities. Pretty awesome. And the best part about that is we don't earn that through our own good works. We don't earn that through our own performance. It's not based on how well we do. It's not based, quite frankly, on how well we listen to Jesus. <clears throat> it's based on what he has done. And so by faith, we receive this, this work that he's accomplished on our behalf, and then we're purified forever. This is good news. This is great news. And that is why we listen. That's why we listen not just carefully. We don't just listen for the information that we're supposed to glean, but the posture of our listening, the posture we're called to adopt is a posture of reverence and awe and wonder. Because no one else, no other God, no other religion, no other philosophy, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, no one else can make purification for our sins. If you can tell, the author of this book is pretty captivated, to say the least, by who Jesus is. He is 
stunned by Jesus' radiance, by his glory. He's overwhelmed by his greatness, and he wants to declare that to these persecuted believers. And I just have to ask the question, what about you? Does this view of Jesus, does this posture of reverence and awe, does this match your own experience? Does Jesus hold the place of honor that he deserves in your devotion to him? Or, or are there other voices? Are there other people speaking to you that you have, whether intentionally or unintentionally, elevated And you have given them an inappropriate influence in your life because their influence over your life is greater than the influence you have assigned to Jesus. You don't have to be an atheist or a Buddhist or a Muslim to do this. Christians do it every day. We functionally elevate the voices of influence in our lives to places of inappropriate honor Because Jesus alone deserves that place of reverence and awe and obedience. I think we do this today. One of the examples, I I was trying to think of, how do we do this? What are some examples of this? And I was just thinking kind of frankly about my own experience and my own failure in this regard. And I I remember when I was in college. um, I feel like this was common then and it's still just as common today. What we often do, for those of us who are in the church, who consider themselves Christians, we often... We often elevate the voices of our celebrity pastors. Am I right? We, we have these favorite authors of books or these favorite TV preachers or people who we download their podcasts and they sort of take on a functional authority in our lives where whatever they say goes. And in front, when I was in college, the, the big name, the guy that we all looked up to in my circle of friends was John Piper. Now, don't get me wrong, I admire John Piper. He's still a great teacher and all that. But... He became this sort of trump card whenever we would have Bible studies or discipleship appointments or just in casual conversations. And the conversation would go something like, we're having this debate or this conversation, and one of us would just say, well, John Piper says, as though that sort of ended the conversation, you know, discussion over. You know what I mean? Rather than, what does Jesus say about that? What does God's word say about that? We sort of elevate these people as sort of the functional Um, their their voice has functional weight in our lives greater than Jesus. Now, it may not be John Piper for you. Maybe it's Matt Chandler, Tim Keller. I don't know who who it is for you. Maybe it's not a a celebrity pastor. Maybe it's it's Oprah or something. I don't know. But who, who is the voice of influence in your life or voices of influence that are in your life that you have inappropriately elevated to that of the greatest authority, where you give the greatest reverence, the greatest respect, and the greatest awe to what they have to say to you. The second question is, what, you know, what are some ways, once we've identified the ways we're doing that, what are some ways that we can put ourselves in a position to listen to Jesus? And I want to suggest a couple ideas for you here at Crew. I want, you to, I want to invite you to consider joining a, a community group if you're not already involved with one. Because in our community groups, we will be discussing the Bible. We will be opening this book, and we'll be going through the Gospel of John in this first semester. 
And the Gospel of John is all about Jesus, right? And so if you want to posture yourselves under his teaching and learn about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, um, be a part of that community group. Go and don't just attend, but I would, I would ask you to consider your posture. Are you eager to hear his word? Are you eager to receive from Jesus truth? Come back to crew, and we're going to continue hearing from the, uh, this study in Hebrews, and you'll continue to see Jesus put on display. Establish maybe a, a, a daily devotional life where you open the Bible and to start to read his words. We need to be retrained to hear his voice. We need to retrain ourselves to, to kind of tune out the voices that have become too important so that we can clearly hear his voice. Those are just a few suggestions. Well, many years ago, um, there were a group of men who went hiking in the wilderness. And uh, they were climbing a mountain, and when they reached their summit, they got to the top of the mountain, something eerie happened. A cloud rushed in, and it turned bright. The clothes of one of the men in the group, there were three of them, the clothes of one of the men all of a sudden changed color. It was crazy. It turned a bright white. And then all of a sudden his face started shining to the other men. And when that happened, the other two guys in the hiking group were terrified. And in their adrenaline and fear, they started saying all kinds of crazy things. And then all of a sudden, there was a voice that broke through the bright cloud above. You know what that voice said? It said, this is my beloved son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. And all of a sudden, the cloud dissipated, and they were standing there looking at Jesus of Nazareth. My friends, God has spoken to us decisively and supremely and finally in Jesus of Nazareth. So we should listen. Are you listening? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the revelation that you have given to us supremely in your Son, Lord, I confess that in my own brokenness, I do not revere and honor him the way that I should. I confess that I elevate voices to inappropriate levels, and I care more about what they have to say than what has already been revealed by no one other than the creator and sustainer of the universe, the very radiance and glory, or radiance of your glory, the Lord Jesus. Would you forgive me? And would you forgive all of us for our failure to render unto your name the proper reverence and awe that you alone deserve? Minister your gospel to our hearts. Help us to experience the purification of our sins. Help us to know, Lord, that we are loved and that we don't worship a distant deity, but we worship the God who has come near, revealed himself in grace and in truth. 
We pray all these things in his name, the name above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.